you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Lamentations. That's in the Old Testament, right after Jeremiah. title of the sermon this morning is A Prophet's Sorrow. A Prophet's Sorrow. So why pick a book like Lamentations? Haven't we had enough heartache the last few years? Can't we just have something a little more exciting that'll pump us up? In answer to these questions, I want to start off by stating that I had a very difficult time choosing this series. I wrestled with what the next series should be, and I read through multiple books as I prepared for this series. I believe the book of Lamentations gives us a glimpse into the prophet whose heart breaks for the people of God. Israel. Jeremiah is sent to deliver the message of judgment to an unrepentant people. The people of Israel, specifically Judah, attempted living isolated into themselves rather than turning in repentance to God. This isolation and outright rejection of the warnings of judgment brought about the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. With every warning that could be given, the nation still refused to listen. Even when all the signs were there, the judgment was coming. I believe with all my heart that the church has become rather dishonest with the world about what's coming regarding the judgment of God. We've become rather lax when it comes to sin and judgment, and very much accepting of the very things God despises. The very things that God judged Israel over, we accept as appropriate in our culture. And we cherry pick our favorite verses so that we build a version of God that we like in our country. But in judgment, church, there is hope. But you can't have the good news without the bad news. Because unfortunately, most people want the good news without any bad news. And essentially, what happens is we've misrepresented or outright denied or ignored the judgment of God. Jeremiah's predictions came to pass. All the things that he had warned about were now clearly seen to him. It's fulfilled literally within his eyes. And it's in this context that the book of Lamentations is written. Let's start with some background of the book and the author before we get to the text. So author is more than likely Jeremiah. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the introduction reads as follows. Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem and said... The writer himself was an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem. And there are also similarities to the poetry in Jeremiah and Lamentations. Lamentations is written as five 
elegies, which is poems of serious reflection, usually over someone that has died. Very closely related to the word eulogy. The first four, if you will, laments follow an acrostic pattern. The first letter of the lines or group representing each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, each having three verses starting with the same letter instead of just one as the other chapters have it. In fact, many argue that Jeremiah set it up this way in aiding with memorization and expressing, if you will, the fullness of grief, A to Z, if you will. I guess there can be a biblical argument made for using acrostic patterns, as Jeremiah definitely does here, in helping communicate particular truths. In fact, the book of Lamentations is part of the Megalot, consisting of five books that are read usually at holidays in the Jewish community. Song of Songs, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and Lamentations. In fact, Lamentations is read on the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The ninth of Av, which is a day of mourning and fasting. Essentially, this is read on the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. There's a lot of truth to be gleaned here. The Hebrew title of the book is Ekah, or How. The first word not only in 1-1, but also in 2-1 and 4-1. Because of its subject matter, the book is also referred to in Jewish tradition as Quinat, or Lamentations, a title taken over by the Septuagint and by the 4th century Latin Vulgate. Now, some of the themes in this book, the obvious, judgment, mourning over sin and consequences, confession of sin, and also God's faithfulness. Today, we'll be looking at just the first part of the first lament of Jeremiah. We'll be looking at two points here. Number one, a lonely city in verse one, and number two, an oppressed people, verses two through four. Number one, a lonely city. Verse one. Here's how it reads. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. Now, church, when we read the book of Lamentations, you need to understand that this is poetry. It is meant to move you and me when we read this. There's an emotional aspect to this that the author is trying to communicate to us. You need to think on the heart behind the words that are stated. This book is very much a psychological, emotional, and spiritual response to what is going on around this prophet at this time. This would be as if you wrote down exactly what you were feeling when you lost something precious to you. 
In verse 1, we see that this city was full of life. But it had now become a lonely encounter for all its inhabitants. Like a widow who's lost her status due to her loss, she sits alone with no one to care for her. That's the idea here in this text. That Jerusalem had lost all the splendor that it once had. All the fellowship that everyone had together was silent. Devastation. Feel the author's pain. Church, I want you to see this as if it's your city that you grew up in for a moment. And I want you to picture that you played in, in this street together with others around you. You knew this community. You spend time with people in this community. And now it's just a big ash heap. You no longer recognize the city. It's demolished. And what once was a loud street rejoicing is now silent. The loud noises that used to bother you, you actually miss. What you once had, you've now lost. Think of having it all and losing it. Think of your children being taken away in captivity. Think of losing the home that you had been so proud of owning. Think of that kind of loss. Think of everything you've enjoyed in America. The time with friends, the movie night, the walk in the park, day at the beach, all of that taken away, and you're now enslaved. You don't have any options. Someone else determines what you're going to do. Think of the pandemic control on steroids. You don't have any options to move because someone else is determining every move you make. You're left all alone. You're isolated. You see, some of us have had a similar experience when we've lost someone we've loved. And we feel the grief and loneliness of them no longer being with us. This city was flourishing and successful. It would be the place everyone would want to be. And now it's just a wasteland and quiet. You see, it's absolutely astounding how many of us have been warned about the shortness of life over the last few years, and we've already attempted to go back to normal, whatever that word means. You would think with all the reminders in our society that we would be a little more serious about the fact that death is around the corner. You would think with the constant fear in our media that more would have thought of eternity a little more seriously in our culture. Unfortunately, most people only want to preserve the here and now. They don't care to prepare for the future. It's about prolonging the life on this earth. Judgment is no longer coming, church. It's already here. 
And we're still pretending that it isn't what it is. Jerusalem was once the glory of the world, but now it's a slave that is oppressed. Number two, an oppressed people. Verses two through four. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. You see, the tears for once we once had, for what we once had, you can't help but continually cry if you're in Jeremiah's situation. This city had it all. They were blessed. But there's no one to comfort. There's no one to comfort you because they are going through the same thing. One of the benefits of some of us going through trials at different times in our lives is that when we've gone through a trial, we now know how to help somebody else that goes through that trial. The difficulty here is they're all going through it together at the same time. There's no no person that was on the other side of this. If you will, the phrase, we're in this together, rings true here. You see, those that they considered friends, in their case, the nation of Egypt, who only supported them for political reasons, had now betrayed them. Once it was no longer convenient, they were no longer friends. Betrayal is one of the fastest ways that friends become enemies. I don't know if you've ever experienced this yourself or seen someone else go through this, but the pain in someone's eyes when they make this statement after they've been hurt. I thought we were friends. You ever gone through that? The betrayal of a friend. That's essentially what's happening to this nation of Israel. They thought these alliances that they had built were going to keep them safe. They were betrayed and deserted. Now I want to pause here for a moment and speak specifically to something that is probably mentioned a lot on social media today. There's a lot of chatter on many topics, many of which we get very emotionally charged up over. The unfortunate thing is we pay merely lip service to our supposed care for the topics that we debate. 
We do this in many ways as people, and particularly those of us that are Christians, when we name the name of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at a few really quick. Let me mention the topic that's been very, very hotly debated the last couple weeks, abortion. An absolutely hot topic right now, which is very much a heated debate, and rightly so, because we're talking about the sanctity of human life. The question becomes more so not what your position is online, but what are you specifically doing to oppose abortion if you're against it, Christian? I mean, if in fact you believe that it's a violation of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and particularly killing someone made in the image of God. I have a couple questions that I want us to ask ourselves when speaking on a subject that we may get blowback over. First of all, ask, who is my audience? Paul, whenever he writes a book, he figures out who his audience is. He's not writing the same things to the church of Corinth that he's writing to Galatia, the churches in Galatia. Two different contexts. You need to know who your audience is, church. We need to know who our audience is when we write about a certain topic. If the audience is other Christians, you may say certain things and share openly without needing to expound on your answer. People will know what you mean. If it's a mixed group of both Christians and non-Christians, you may need to word things differently. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be bold. That's not what I'm saying. But there should be a different way that you word something that would be easily misunderstood by somebody that doesn't understand the Christian lingo, if you will. And here's another question. I think this is the more serious question once we understand who our audience is. Am I consistent in my position? Am I consistent in my position? Do I believe life is sacred so much so that I value life to the extent that I donate to pro-life causes? I'm willing to help in a pregnancy center. I'm thrilled to have children because I view them as a blessing and not an irritation or a nuisance that much of culture does. Am I willing that should God call me to adopt a child whose mother wants an abortion, that I will go ahead and do my part? You see, folks, it's so easy to be talking the talk. Very easy to debate things that we don't have any skin in the game over. Oh, yeah, that person, they really support my cause. They're going to do the work. Church, the question is not whether or not you stand in a certain position. The question is, are you consistent in your position? And unfortunately, a lot of Christians that are pro-life don't care enough about raising their own kids. And I don't think a lot of us are risky enough to go, God, if you're going to call me to possibly adopt someone's child, I'm willing to go that far. Let me go a step further with this, church. Adoption is a picture of what Jesus has done on your behalf in bringing you into the family. If we want to exemplify the very things we stand for, then we need to think through these things a little more than just posting a quick snapshot. 
I am not here to say that we shouldn't stand up for life. We absolutely should, and we should make the points. But I think many times the blowback is valid. We're not being consistent. It matters more what you do than what you say, church. You absolutely should speak up for those that are being slaughtered. But standing up for something should cost you something as well, possibly. It's not a freebie. It is the equivalent of what James says, I'm going to let somebody go. Godspeed. I have it in me to help you out, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to tell you that I'm praying for you, brother or sister. That's all I'm going to do. God bless you. While God's calling me to do something about it. The truth is, many of us are not willing to pay the price, to think through our positions. No matter what you say on social media, you will more than likely offend someone. Because the platform is essentially, it operates that way. It operates that way, essentially it's pictures of friends and family mixed in with nasty debates between friends and family. That's essentially social media in a nutshell. You didn't invite me to this, you didn't do that, you forgot to do this, oh, you got a nice new outfit, I wish I could afford that. I mean, goodness, we have debates over the littlest things. Some of them are serious debates, some of them are very valid debates, and we should have them. But unfortunately, what happens in our culture today, everybody's so easily offended, they can't even wait to actually work, work out the particulars of a topic. Church, we've offended God. When's the last time we cared about that one? Everybody's so worried about the others offending them, they forget that they've offended God. Essentially, that's what the prophet's noticing here. Israel's been betrayed by its friends. It's because they turned their back on God. Their friends were not in alliance with God. I guess the only way to avoid debates is just post pictures of your, your kids, right? That's the safe bet on social media. But then again, that still sometimes erupts into some debates, so maybe that's not as safe as it looks. Depends which, which pictures of your kids, I guess. So church, I want you to take this and apply it to all the areas that you supposedly say you believe and you have a certain position on. Things like the situation in Ukraine. You know, you can disagree politically with people on this and still support the people that are being hurt over there. Like, it doesn't really matter if you're Team R or Team D on this one. You really still can help those that are in need over there. And you don't even have to post it on Facebook. Can you believe that? You can send money privately. Now take your family, for example. Probably going to hit something that's a little sensitive for all of us, but it's something I need to think through myself. Take your family, for example. If they matter that much to you, as they should, how much time do you spend with them? 
And how important is it to you that your children have other friends who are like-minded as you are? It isn't enough just that your children have friends. It's that they are like-minded as you are. They think the things that you do. How important is it to you that you have others that can speak into your own life as an adult? Or do you do what many do today in our society? You have it all figured out. I'm going to pause for a moment and make a statement. There's a lot of church folks in America that live as if church authority is something that God has not instituted. Pastors don't know what they're doing. They don't understand me. I'm not going to listen to them. I know better myself. That is the mentality of many Christians in America today. This concept of submission to spiritual authority, it's lost. And then it turns into an egalitarian position, right? We're all equal. Everybody has the same exact standards for each other, which is impossible to follow. See, the truth is some of us have a legalistic sense of holiness, which starts off with good intentions, a longing to please God. But it boils over into bitterness against those who don't do things the way we do. The way we did growing up. Well, my parents raised me this way. I, I don't remember checking in the Bible and seeing if your parents were the ones that we were supposed to follow. If we were to be honest, I think all of our parents kind of fall beneath the standard of God's Word. You see, if your idea of sanctification is separating from everyone in the church, then I'm begging and pleading with you that you understand that's not what God intended. There are many church folks that think they're more holy than everybody else and they don't need anybody else in their life. That is a position of Satan and not God. The more we sever from the community that God's placed us in, the more dangerous it is for us and our families. You ever heard the statement, no man is an island? Why do we live like we are? Why do we live like we are the only thing that understands? The only ones that know how to operate under the auspice of the scriptures. Why do we think we have it figured out and our brother or sister who might be challenging us on something may not have a valid point? Well, Pastor Rome, you don't understand. It's my personality. I'm just a little different than that person. There's no text to back that position. God called outgoing people and very much the reserved, the shy, the ones that don't really want to come out and say anything. He's called both. God didn't call only Peters into the kingdom. We wouldn't all get along. He balanced it out with people like Barnabas and Paul and John, who still outran Peter to the tomb, which is pretty hilarious. Look, church, go and make things right with those that you're bitter towards in the church. 
rather than pretending that you're better off without them. So many of us have such a false view of what God thinks of us that we assume that God is for our bitterness. He is not. If you're bitter towards another brother or sister in this church, that is not of God. You can bank on that. I hope you get the point that God wants more action than words. For example, if you love God and His church, you'll do more than just like a Facebook page. There's going to be more to it than that. You see, Israel was deceived by its so-called friends who sold him out as soon as it was convenient to do so. You need to know who the people that you are running with are. i got to tell you, church, I'm so grateful for the men in this church. There have been many moments in my time here that I've been concerned. I say, you know what? It's really okay. I've got this brother that has my back. I've got this sister that's faithfully serving, even when it's difficult. It's important to know who the people we are running with are. Israel was deceived. And I want to pause for a moment on one thing that I think is so important that's missed in this text. Jeremiah told them news they didn't want to hear. But he was telling them the truth. The nations that they formed alliances with, and they assumed that God was not really going to judge them because this alliance was going to keep everything intact, were lying to them. They were using them until a profitable time for them. And I want to warn us, church, that we don't go for those that want to keep flattering us. If the friendships that you've built with people have always been fair-weather friendships, they're not the ones you want or need in this life. If people are around only when it's good in your life, that is not a real friendship. There have been some cuts that we've cut each other with in this church. And that's good. It's right. What's terrible is we deny the fact that we need one another. And that we need to confront things in one another. And unfortunately, we've fallen asleep assuming that everything's just fine. I want to warn you, church, about one thing. When you see this stuff going on with Israel, when we talk about this throughout this book, I want you to understand that if this happened to them, it very well may happen to you and me. I don't believe that last year at this time, Ukrainians thought that they'd be losing their homes. I don't believe that was ever on their radar. Folks, in a moment, this whole landscape can change. And the question is not so much that it can or won't. Are you ready? Should it? Judgment's already here. God is not going to hold us guiltless for the many millions we've slaughtered. Oppression happens 
when those we consider friends are really our enemies. When we all hear our things that we like, more than likely we're being deceived. And the deception many times comes in the form of our so-called friends and family that care so much about us. Church, a bitter truth is always better than a sweet lie. Always. When it comes to the things of God, you should prefer to hear the truth. Be certain that if you've never had hard conversations with those close to you, you don't really know them the way that you say you do. And they don't really know you. There are men and women in this church that we've had sharp disagreements with, difficult conversations, hurt, tension. But at the end, God worked those things for our good because it was us sharpening one another. You see, the oppression in our case comes from Satan and sin itself which enslaves us with bitterness towards others and telling us that we are right to feel the way that we do about them. Just as Jerusalem seems to be heading for a bitter ending with all that's happened in its destruction, we are as well, church. Don't assume because it's not the worst it can be that it's not already bad. How many of you have ever made a mistake in your life where you knew, hey, if I keep doing this, I might get hurt, and you eventually got hurt? Growing up, we've all done it, right? Don't swing from that. Forget mom's instruction on that. We're going to give it one more try. Drop, arm broken. We're going to the hospital. We didn't learn. Church, in a serious manner, I don't think we're still learning now as adults. I think we've grown up and still gotten used to the fact that certain things we've gotten away with for so long. But I'm here to tell you that based on the scripture and what we see clearly goes on with Israel and Jerusalem particularly, that consequences are there. There's not an infinite supply of God's long-suffering. It's long-suffering, but there is an end to it. If you and I can't rejoice with our fellow believers, it's very possible that there may be a bitterness inside that we refuse to deal with ourselves. You see, so many in the church could have resolved things with others, but they're not willing to share their heart with those that they've been hurt by or those that they've offended. They're not willing to make amends and forgive one another. And I'm going to say this, church, I think there are so many things that we could do so much better as a church if we did these basics right. When someone's hurt us, go up to them and ask them what it is that they meant by what they did so we understand a little more where they're coming from and where we're offended, be honest about it. 
There are so many secret things that people brew over for many years. I mean, goodness, I found out an incident that happened six years ago that somebody got upset about with me. I had no idea. No idea. Six years ago. I forgot all about it. And it eats you. You know what's even worse? The person that did that to you doesn't even know that happened. They didn't even know what they did. And you're upset at them. And you're expecting them to know as if they're God. You should tell by my demeanor I'm upset at you. How do they know? I mean, you could have been upset at somebody else too that day. We don't know for sure. Can you read people's thoughts? I can't. What the prophet's doing here is he's emotionally trying to express the fact that Israel was in so much danger because they assumed so much and they were wrong. They assumed that God really wasn't going to judge them. God really wasn't going to do this to us. We're his chosen people. How could he do that? Let me warn you, church, God very well disciplines his children, and the consequences sometimes are very, very severe. You say you care to live holy. Then do what Scripture says by making things right with others instead of remaining bitter or angry at them. That's not holiness. Holding something over somebody else is not holiness. Because you've put yourself on this pedestal like you've arrived. Well, everybody in the church is not loving. They don't care. What about you? If only others were more giving, how giving are you? If only others invited me to their house, what about you? Have you invited anybody? Or is that ignored on your end entirely? It's expected of everybody else that might have a bigger house than you do. Look, to a certain extent, I get it. I hated when I had the apartment. I didn't want to invite anybody to that house. But there are other avenues to invite people to. If your house is not enough, go to Cracker Barrel. Sure, people will take you up on that offer. Cracker Barrel is awesome. Love that place. The truth is, we may very well lose our status as the nation of Israel did. Church, I think what happens is we try to skip steps and try to reach others in the community or in the world before we've taken care of ourselves first. And no, I don't want to dwell on this every single waking moment of my life, but I realize that before God can do anything in someone else's life that I'm affecting, I need to deal with myself first. Before I can make an impact on the students in this school, I need to make sure that God's working on me right. And I'm responding properly. Before we expect change in others, let's look at ourselves. You see, one of the problems with Israel is they assumed, well, the other nations, they're practicing all these other things that we're not doing. So we're in the clear. We're not as bad as they are. That not as bad as they are is the argument a lot of us still use. And the prophet's going, you're oppressed. 
but the very people you didn't think you'd come under oppression. Here's what's amazing about Christians. Christians will argue that the world influences everybody else horribly, and they buy the very stuff that the world buys. Oh my goodness, my pagan friends, they are influenced by this media, and they're influenced by that media. What are you influenced by? Ask yourself that. A little five minutes of the Bible ain't going to be much of an influence. Let me quickly read. Done. Let's watch our back-to-back episodes for three hours straight while we spent five minutes with God that day. That's not going to affect us at all, right? Very balanced. Church, there's a lot of things that we get out of order. One of the worst things I think that the church can do is look at this warning from Jeremiah and seeing what he's going through, his lament, his grief over losing his nation. And look at ourselves and say, we're fine. I'm just fine the way I am. They, they need to worry about it. It doesn't pertain to me. Well, we have the outlook of Jeremiah and mourn over what has been lost in this nation. There are many things that have been lost in this nation. Are we simply going to move on as if nothing happened and no serious consequences have actually occurred? I want to close with this question, church. What do you cry over? What do you cry over? You see, there are many reasons that we mourn as people. Some of it's the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, maybe an investment. There are a lot of people suicidal this last week, losing a lot of crypto. True story. Have you cried over the fact that you're feeling sorry for yourself? There are many different reasons we cry. Even the toughest among us have moments where we break down. I know some of us are very much the, I'm not going to do it in front of my kids type, I'll privately cry. The truth is, when was the last time you grieved over your own sin? When was the last time you grieved over the sins of this nation? And I don't mean sharing, you know, shedding a couple tears. I'm talking, really, you felt it in the heart. It broke your heart that you know children are being slaughtered. It broke your heart that the very children you have at Grace Academy are instruments that God wants to use. And you are one of them. And God's called you to be a minister to them. And that your time is not to be wasted on the petty, stupid things. We want great things for our kids. Any of us that are parents. But do we want them to have Christ more than anything else?
What's it going to take, church, to wake up? What's it going to take for us to realize that we have people that walk through these school doors every morning that need Jesus? And that there really is judgment awaiting their families if they don't know Christ. I know we're about the education. I'm not knocking any of that. I think it's absolutely important. We need to have a good standard in that. But if we don't have grace in Grace Academy, we've missed it. God has given the church a wake-up call for the last couple years. What have we done with it? What have we done with it? Have we been more urgent to, to warn about the upcoming judgment? That is awaiting every soul that do not, does not know Christ. Are we comfortable that we're safe? You know how with the pandemic, you know, the vaccinated felt more safe than the unvaccinated, that whole debate? The truth is, we're all in trouble, especially when it comes to eternity without Christ. That debate is not primary. It shouldn't be. Let me ask you this question. Have we ourselves become more diligent in following Christ and making disciples ourselves? Have we become more passionate about the fact that we have something left to give someone else that God's called us to? Have we found ourselves ignoring the warnings of Scripture ourselves? We just sang the song, right? All I have is Christ. Is that true? Jesus is my life. You realize what you're saying? Jeremiah in his grief is a reminder to the children of Israel and to us that God's judgment is real. And it's to be taken seriously. While we may not be able to change anything that's happened in the past, we ought to live in light of this in the future. Judgment is already here. And we shouldn't wait for a nuclear war to realize it's here. Every person that does not know Christ is a person in danger of the judgment of God, both in this life and in eternity. There are consequences in both. Being cut off for eternity in a place called hell that many churches no, one, no longer want to preach. More serious than any disaster that occurs on this earth. I want you to picture forever and realize that that's stamped. No changing. Permanent impression. Should grieve us that people go there. 
should grieve us that our nation is on its way to hell. If you don't know Christ, you're watching this online, let me urge you and beg you that you do not take for granted the life that you've been given and that you turn in faith and repentance to Christ. There's only one remedy, and that is faith in Christ. There's nothing else that can save you and me. Being a good old boy or girl does not save us. Being a nice person does not save us. Going to church does not save us. The blood of Christ saves us. And if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we are guaranteed salvation. Believe on his name. Follow him. Church, we need to follow him.